Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of React Roundup. I will be your host today, Paige Niedringhaus, and we are joined by our panelists, TJ Van Toll. Hey. And Jack Harrington. Hello. And our special guest today is a guy named Tommy Groshan. Hey, how's it going? Glad to be here. Welcome, Tommy. We're really glad to have you on today. When I went freelance, I was still only a few years into my development career. My first contract, I was paid 60 bucks an hour. Due to feedback from my friends, I raised it to 120 bucks an hour on the next contract. And due to the podcasts I was involved in and the screencasts I had made in the past, I started getting calls from people I'd never even heard of who wanted me to do development work for them because I had done that kind of work or talked about or demonstrated that kind of work in the videos and podcasts that I was making. Within a year, I was able to more than double my freelancing rates, and I had more work than I could handle. If you're thinking about freelancing or have a profitable but not busy or fulfilling freelance practice, let me show you how to do it in my Dev Heroes Accelerator. Dev Heroes aren't just people who devs admire, they're also people who deliver for clients who know, like, and trust them. Let me help you double your income and fill your slowdowns. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. Would you like to take a second and introduce yourself to the audience and tell us a little bit about why you're famous? <laughs> sure thing. I'm Tommy Groshan, decidedly not famous. I'm a software consultant at Testable. So I primarily specialize in React and front-end development. Recently, I've been consulting for companies like Betterment and Zendesk and a few smaller startups like in the 3D printing and manufacturing space. And I just finished with a sportswear e-commerce company, which was a lot of fun. So uh, before Testable, I was doing a lot of software consulting, primarily for service companies in like construction, oil and gas. And I really like consulting a lot because I love to come into new companies and because they always have unique domains, unique problems that are kind of specific to their you know industries. And uh, so I, I love being a consultant. And before that, I made my made my bones working at software as a service companies. And it's where I kind of learned the art of programming. So, and I guess I'm here because I wrote a blog article that people thought wasn't terrible about React context and using it for dependency injection. So, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, so that, yeah, so that article, you mentioned not using context for state management. I think that's, that's awesome. Um, why don't you give us a little detail about that and why, why you think you shouldn't use use context for state management and why you should use it for dependency injection? Sure. And I'm, I'm glad you framed it that way because that's like a common like a way that it, that it gets asked to me is with that kind of framing. And I think it was because I didn't word the title totally right because it makes the title makes it sound like it's this prescriptive thing. Like you shouldn't use React context for state management. You should use it for something else. When really it's more of a descriptive that React context isn't a state management solution. React context is a dependency injection tool. Because, and when you, uh, you know, I reference a lot, um, a really great article by Mark Erickson, who's the current maintainer of Redux, who's a great guy. And uh, we've had a lot of discussions back and forth about this topic uh, after this came up. And he's really easy to talk to about a lot of this stuff. But one of the things that's, uh, that he makes, a point that he makes in uh, his article about uh, React, why React context is not a state management tool. He does, he does a very eloquent job talking about this, but that, React context, when you really look at like what it's designed to do, what the docs tell you it is, and how it actually is used in the wild, it's not a state management tool. It literally is a transport mechanism that lets you send, you know, wormhole things from one side of the app to the other. And when you and be, 
when you realize that and you kind of know that's what it is, then that opens up a lot of opportunity for how you can you know, take advantage of that. And you know, sometimes I get worried that people, because React context, whenever you have the word context in, in that word somewhere, like I know like for half my career, my eyes would just glaze over the, the moment the word context came up in any, co- in any programming discussion. It sounds weird and tricky, but when you know what it is and you start using it, you find that it's actually not that scary, not tricky, and very useful if you have a good idea of the kind of place that it fits. So I think another term that people like gloss over there is dependency injection. So maybe like that might be worth defining, especially for people that are new to the concept. Maybe you could talk about like, what is dependency injection? Dependency injection, why would you want to use it? Like what problem are you trying to solve? Yeah, sure. Dependency injection, that's uh, one of these kind of older terms. So it has a lot of baggage with it because you know they, people have been doing dependency injection as a behavior ever since we had functions that could take arguments. People have been dependency injecting things. But it's, uh, but it's also something that it got, the term got coined a long time ago. So it naturally, and it's gone like all programming terms when the Fortran people talked about them mean something very different now when you fast forward 40, 50 years. But yeah, uh, it's a good question. Dependency injection is, you, know, you can boil it down to, it's just a way of thinking about and managing the dependencies between parts of your code. When you think uh, a very similar a very similar part of the uh, programming space is the idea of coupling. That if you, when you have coupling between pieces of code, it's because this code has relies on this other piece of code. And there's like a lot of assumptions that go along with that connection. And depending on the degree to which they rely, those these pieces of code rely on each other, uh, you have you know higher degree of coupling and lower degree of coupling. Dependency injection is kind of taking that kind of idea of your code is always going to have some coupling. How do you manage that coupling so that you have the right amount without having too much? Too much coupling we know is really dangerous because too much coupling makes it really easy to, you you accidentally break things because you change something in one part of the code base and you get spooky action at at a distance on the other part of your code base because something breaks and you don't know why. Like, Something on the opposite end of my app just broke and I changed something way over here. What happened? And it's because these two things were coupled in a way that may not have been obvious, but they are. And dependency injection is a way that you can kind of make those those relationships between code more explicit and uh, be able to write code that is less coupled. And when it's less coupled, it can be more cohesive. So those are also kind of loaded terms, but I'll pause right there before we dive into something like that. (laughs) Yeah, maybe like, I love that explanation. And I know like this is an audio podcast, so this might be a little bit tricky, but maybe like, could you give like a specific example of like what, what how you might want to do it? Like I said, like maybe not with it getting into like exact like <laughs> function names, but just like a high level problem where you might use this technique. Yeah, sure. There's a, we actually do this. We actually do a low form, uh, a, a simple form of dependency injection. Whenever we write a React component, that takes a callback as a prop. We're kind of, we're writing like, that's like a very simple version of dependency injection. Because the idea is like, okay, you can uh, visualize yourself a form that you have written that maybe it's a fairly complicated form and has a lot of fields in it. And this form is to create some object, create some, you know, resource for you. So 
when you're writing this form and it's just this form is just used for creating and the natural thing you're going to do is you're going to write your your on submit handler inside of that component and it's going to do on submit you're going to submit that data to a server or something like that that's how you may start with it but later on you're like oh i need to also have an edit for this same resource and the edit form looks almost identical to the create form then one of the first things that... So if you want to try to reuse that component, which is a very natural thing to do, you want to reuse it. One of the first things that's got to go is that submit handler. Because that submit handler, maybe that entire component could be used for both create and for edit. But that submit handler, definitely not. So a way that you will... Very typical to fix that is you pass in to that form component a on-submit prop to your uh, to your component use and then when your form submits inside the component instead of having the logic for your actual ajax and stuff like that in there and you know having your fetch your fetch stuff in there you'll instead just say okay here's all the data from the form i call the on submit and it does something i don't know what so that's kind of a, that that is a form of dependency injection and it's a way that um, you can kind of see how this makes there's less coupling between concepts and there's a, a higher amount of cohesion here because now you can reuse this component, this form component for two pretty different operations, creating and updating, you know, creating and editing. And you can reuse it because it's not super coupled to one or the other. It's not super coupled to creating or to editing. So, you know, that's really, so that's both you know, an example of how you do it and why it can be useful and how we kind of do it all the time in React because props are a great idea. Yeah, and also I think JavaScript is also really well-suited to this sort of thing. Uh, back in the day, I, I've i done dependency injection before in Java in a previous life. And it, uh, I mean, it solved the same sort of problem, but there was so much ceremony involved with doing it just because of it being a strongly typed compiled language and such that it kind of took away from some of the benefits, but JavaScript, man, it's everything's, you just pass functions in like, right. It's, it's the wild west. Um, and I've always thought that it's quite nice for these sort of techniques. Cause it gives you some more room to experiment and play too. Absolutely. I totally agree. Um, JavaScript both, you know, with it being a dynamic language and with it, JavaScript has always, for as long as I can remember, has always been really good about being able to pass callbacks around and functions and objects and things around, everything being just an object. That makes it really easy and really natural to do kind of dependency injection, both in a very simple way, just passing passing a function or a callback into your into a function, or even more, uh, you know, more elegant and interesting ways. Yeah, the... Uh, I think that there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of pushback on the idea of dependency injection from some people who come from other ecosystems and and backgrounds because they've had horror stories of like <laughs> oh I remember using this inversion of control container dependency injection framework in Java or in .NET and it was awful and you're like yeah no, I can I can see that it's hard to argue with some of these horror stories but you know some of that is just some of it's tooling. And there are various you know levels of good good and bad tooling, right? But also, like you 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 nailed it, having a dynamic language that really supports functions as objects and things makes dependency injection so much easier and more natural. So it's like it really just feels like writing JavaScript code when you're doing dependency injection. You're just it's another tool for your toolbox rather than a 
big architectural thing that I am opting into and really hope I have good tooling for. Well, and I don't know if any of you have had the good fortune or at least the experience of working with Angular, especially when Angular was in its first stages of 1, 1.0 and, and up. But dependency injection was a, it was and is probably still, because I haven't worked with it since 2.0 came out, a huge piece of the Angular puzzle. And it was very confusing. And I would get into circular dependency hell frequently with Angular. So, but React is completely different. React makes it so much easier. The lack of two-way data binding, the, the understanding that data only flows in one direction, which is down the, the dependency tree or the component tree, and using context to kind of help handle that and make it less, less confusing or less extra stuff that gets passed around and, and put into different components is has been such a game changer. I, I agree with you. It was something that I didn't understand for probably the first six months or so that I was working with hooks in particular. But once I had once something finally clicked in my head, then it was it was like we have context everywhere in the application now to help pass all those values through from the parents to the children and back up up the tree again. And it's it's awesome. I'm I'm a huge fan of it now. Absolutely, I'm so glad that they uh, that the React uh, you know core team did uh, all that work that it took to formalize the context API because React had a context API for a long time, but it was always unstable and it had some like design issues with it because it, it's kind of a tricky thing to solve within React's in React's render model when you start you know, thinking through all the things you have to do. You know, it, it's actually a pretty you know tricky problem, but. For a lot of years, the old version of React's context API was always unstable and private. So they really only ever told library developers about it because a lot of the third-party libraries that you really want uh, to be able to use in React, especially in those early days, like you need some, you need a context API to make it a good uh, development experience. But so it's like you, there's yeah, they were in a rock and a hard place with that one because they you had library developers who could do really great things if they had this context API. But it was a ton of work and difficulty to do. And it just it took a long time to get to a point where they could design it in a really stable and, you know, safe way. So I'm really appreciative that, you know, the React core team uh, put so much work and effort into making a good context API because hooks, I feel, is kind of a mixed bag when it comes to API choices. But context, I, I see as kind of like an uh, unquestionably awesome, you know, thing that they did. You know, they nailed it on the, the context API. And there are some things that like, hey, I'd really love if context could also do some other stuff. And there's some room for some additional features that I think would be awesome and that, you know, I've heard talked about. But just as like improvement from what it was to what it is now, and for just all the patterns that it unlocks for the application developer is amazing. And that's that's really what I love to see is uh, so much uh, is I like seeing a lot more of the effort put to making application developers lives easier and that being able to let these people, these developers make better apps rather than just like, you know, and it made sense at the beginning, React needed to be very focused on libraries and library developers because they needed that ecosystem. We've got an ecosystem now. And what we really want is we want good software. And that really, that all is going to hinge on 
application developers and be providing them with tools, but also just providing them with options to be able to make decisions because it's the application developer who really knows what their problem needs. So kind of enabling them whenever you can. And I really like seeing some of the stuff that the React team has done to do, to kind of push that. And I, I'm appreciative. So Views Context is primarily for DI. Let me ask you a question that I get asked a ton, which is now that we got this world of state management where it's not quite clear which way you're supposed to go and, and you're doing mostly React application architecture, what would you recommend for folks when it comes to state management in 2021? Mm, yeah, that's that's such a big question. You've got thirty uh, seconds, so thirty. Uh, that's all. <laughs> yeah, that's, Man, that's a, one, that's one a word answer. Would be great. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, I got a <laughs> sentence for you. <laughs> but I uh, no the uh, no I get asked this a lot, and I wish I had a more pithy answer. But the things that I found is React context is a transport mechanism, and any application can find a use for it, and a very useful use for it. Useful use for it. But React, one of the things that sometimes we forget is that React is a view library. But that's kind of a loaded term in React world because when you think of what's a view library in another ecosystem, you're thinking something like ERB, you know, embedded Ruby, or you're thinking embedded JavaScript, you know, these templating libraries. That's what you're thinking when you're thinking view library. React is so much more than that. React is both templating and React is a state management library. And people sometimes forget that React is a state management library and it has a reactivity model built into it. And that's all packaged into React. Now, React doesn't really concern itself with anything outside of UI development. So when it comes to networks, when it comes to communicating with the backend or anything like that, you're kind of on your own. You know, bring, bring your own tool there. But I'd say that React ships with a very solid state management library that you can get a long way on. And especially when people understand uh, the context, you can actually do really well just having, I have the context, I have React as a state management library. And the that works for most issues when you're talking view state and you're talking like local synchronous stuff. The one area that React gives you nothing about uh, or no help with is when it comes to server state and you know fetching remote state. That's the biggest gap. And that's also where I see most people start. That's when most people start reaching for a state management tool. And all the projects that I've seen, it's we were just writing React code and then we needed to hit an API. And that's when we're like, okay, now we need to bring in something else because this is hard. React hooks made this a little easier to some extent because of like, you know, use effects and stuff. But I think we all, anyone who's used use effect for anything for a while also starts to get very disillusioned with use effect being easy. <laughs> but uh, what I really love doing right now is I will pretty much, after I install React, the only like, the very next thing that I install is React Query. Which is uh, a uh, which I've also written uh, written about. I'm a big fan of React Query, but uh, that's a tool that's specifically. It's not even. I wouldn't even say it's a state management library, or or rather, it's maybe it's a it is a state management library specifically for this spot of how to fetch and manage remote state that's owned by an API. And React Query is amazing at that. And I found that when you understand or are comfortable with hooks and context and React itself and then you understand React Query, you can build almost any app. 
with those two things. And I love that. And, and React Query is able to do that without dictating how you write the rest of your app. And that's kind of a weakness that I see with a lot of when you're bringing in a state management library with TM, state management TM library, right? Like a, like a Redux, which I, I love and respect Redux, especially its history. And, you know, MobX or Recoil, you have some really interesting things going on there. But a lot of times, like those tools only become useful to their best degree when you're talking about complex UI state that requires synchronizing between many different uh, components. And a lot of apps don't have that problem, and especially not in the beginning. The apps that do have it end up having it like later on for a very specific workflow. But almost every app in the world that's not a toy needs to hit an API. So that's where I kind of like, you know what, most of the time, your state management just can be React, and then you need something to help you with the server state, you know, server, your remote data fetching, and I love reaching for React Query. So I have another article uh, on the Testable blog, uh, so blog.testable.com, where I talk a little bit about um, how you can actually use React Query to reduce the surface area of your state management problem. So it's like, hey, if you're using React Query, you magically find that like 80% of the stuff you were using state management for is gone. And that's really cool. Because then you're just like, oh, I just have React, which I know how to use React. I like React. And then I have my React query stuff that's just doing my, that's just helping me get data from an API. And then all of a sudden, it's like 80% of my view, you know, state management woes just disappear. And I love that. So it's one of the reasons I always recommend people. One of the first things I always install is React query. And that actually helps me indirectly with my state management problem. Thank you. No problem. <laughs> but yeah, that's, it's something that comes up a lot because I, think especially because so many people for so or it's not, not so many people it's so many years there were a lot of things that like we just didn't really have options and for how you could fetch stuff easily from an asynchronous source because that's really what it is it's being able to have some asynchronous source that of data that could uh that is kind of a shared data that you know shared data that anyone could update so like you could be stale so you need to background fetch things you need to uh, be able to do refreshes and stuff without tearing up the page and for a lot of years there was not an easy way to do that you could really you kind of had to do it yourself by using a state management tool and kind of making these things you know these pieces all work together i really like that react hooks made tools like react query possible and there are other ones uh, react query apollo became a lot better when hooks shipped uh, if you're into the graphql scene and uh, there's also uh, SWR. I think that was by the Next.js people, which is a very great library as well. But like all these, like a lot of these libraries either did, couldn't exist or at the very least didn't exist in the way that they do now until Hooks came. So that was one of the good parts about Hooks was it kind of democratized some of these infrastructural things that you needed to provide these really good third-party libraries, which I'm really happy about. Yeah, I, I especially like your advice of just wait, sort of wait until you have the problem before you reach for some of these things. I think that's a theme that's come up on this podcast several times. I'm actually curious, uh, maybe you could, without naming names, since you're a consultant and you go into a lot of places, do you see, do you have like a lot of horror stories of, of like three state management libraries in one app or like crazy dependency trees or people 
mostly like good citizens of the React world when it comes to this sort of thing? I think uh, that's a that's an interesting question. I definitely have horror stories of some big <laughs> names. I'll say that uh, probably one of the more consistent things that I see is that in the React land, even very large and complex apps with like you know car- large and complex React code bases with lots of like discrete applications living in them, they tend to not have like. Most of the time I see those, they're really only using like one state management library if they're using any. Most of the time it's Redux. Sometimes I think like we forget that Redux is like the go-to for like so many people. And it's like, it is now, it's funny to think like, you know, because it doesn't feel that long, but like Redux React applications are now legacy for a lot of companies. And that's that's wild to me because I remember being an intern and just learning this stuff brand new in 2014. But I say the probably the fun, funnest one that I had was uh, was at Zendesk and they uh, they had a old Ember app that was running a lot of their system because they they were using Ember a bunch. And then they had started a rewrite in React, but they needed, they're a real company with real users, so they need to keep everything running. So they ended up, they have Ember apps that launch React applications inside of them. And then they uh, you have Ember apps that kind of manage their own stuff and then pass, uh, they wrote this whole system so that they could like pass Ember data down to React components and then let a React application run. That was probably the wildest one that I've seen recently <laughs> at scale. That was, but hey, they got really smart people working there who know what they're doing. And I was, it was one of those things where you're like both, you're simultaneously horrified and impressed. You're like, <laughs> yeah. this is impressive that you made this, this thing work on duct tape. This is great. Are you ready for core web vitals? Fortunately, Raygun can help. These modern performance metrics play an important role in determining the health of your website, which is why Raygun has baked them directly into their real user monitoring tools. Now you can see your core web vital scores are trending across your entire website in real time and drill into individual pages to focus your efforts on the biggest performance gains. Unlike traditional tools, Raygun surfaces real user data, not synthetic, giving you greater insights and control. Filter your score by time frame, browser, device, geolocation, whatever matters to you most. And what makes Raygun truly unique is the level of detail they provide so you can take action. Quickly identify and resolve front-end performance issues with full waterfall breakdowns, user session data, instance-level diagnostics of every page request, and a whole lot more. Visit raygun.com today and take control of your core web vitals. Plans start from as little as $8 per month. That's raygun.com for your free 14-day trial. Yeah, you're like, I would pay to read an article about how they did that and how they make it work. But I, I can completely relate to that because I work for Home Depot and we, my particular team, we have an application that is Angular, which is what it started in. And then when Angular support went away from Google, we decided that we either had to upgrade it to Angular 2 or 4 or maybe 6 was coming out at that point or move it to React or something completely different. We ended up going with React, which is why I'm now on this podcast because I do build most of my applications with it. But it is, I mean, there are still, there is still stuff that we have not migrated over because like you, we could not just shut it down and completely rebuild it from the ground up. So we proxy back and forth between the two applications, depending on what screen a user is on. And it's kind of a mess, but it works. They can do what they need to do. 
We use Redux as well. So we are considered, I guess, somewhat of a legacy React app, but we added React Query. So it's like we're moving in the right direction. We're still upgrading and trying and using hooks and staying relevant in that regard. But there's definitely some stuff that now I wish we could remove Redux from because it's like, it seems like basically user information is the only thing that we're keeping in the Redux store that could not be stored it really it could be stored in context now if we just wrapped the entire application with it but at the time we didn't have that opportunity or we didn't have that understanding of react's power i guess and the vast majority of the rest of the stuff that we've stored in redux could definitely be done with like react queries data caching react contexts state at the top level and then pass it to the the children components that need it but yeah, I I can completely relate to that. <laughs> it's yeah. a weird duct tape bubblegum system, but it works. <laughs> but it works. And I think I think there actually is a pattern of success in this idea. If you can if you can pull it out of there because I uh, I think you can actually see the success of React as a library in this concept that like when you look at like 2013-2014 when React is just coming onto the stage Angular is king. All right. At that point, like 2012 was like when what was uh, what was Jeremy? Where was Jeremy Jeremy Ashkenoff's uh, Ashkenoff's uh, library? Backbone. Backbone. Yeah. Like Backbone 2012 ruled 2012, and Backbone really got people thinking about. Thank you, Jeremy. Backbone really got people thinking seriously about how you write and how you write code on the front end, and. That really kicked off the professionalization of JavaScript and front-end work. And I appreciate it because I've made a career on that. Thank you, Jeremy, for kicking that off. But then Angular hit the scene and Angular was king. Angular was king for good reason because it solved problems. And it also kept on this, this route of kind of professionalizing this. Uh, I keep saying professionalizing. That's the best word I can come up with. But it it really brought in a lot of, it was trying to apply design principles to your front-end work. And there hadn't been a lot of that up to that point. So you got to respect that stuff that was happening. But when React came in, it was like, how are you possibly going to compete with a view library? You know, just a simple view library. And how are you going to compete with something like Angular? And then you had, you had Ember that was trying to be the upstart and take some space there at the time. You know, And you had Prototype that was on the scene, or Polymer. You, you had Polymer on the scene. You had all these competition. And that was kind of when we were like getting really into like, oh yeah, there's a React, there's a uh, JavaScript framework every every week. But uh, React came in, and I I really believe that the reason React won, and I think it's very clear that React did win. React won because you could stick React anywhere. You could put it. You could in like we were embedding React on just little Ruby on Rails pages, where it's like I just want this one little thing on the page to be really interactive. You could embed that into your legacy 10-year-old Ruby on Rails project and it would work excellently. And you couldn't do that with Angular because Angular at the time wanted to run the page. Mm -hmm. And it was hard to beat back Angular and say, no, you only live in this little box. Angular didn't want to do that. Ember didn't want to do that. React was like, yeah, sure, I'll do that. I don't care. You could, you could, React became this like little viral infectious library that you could stick anywhere. People, we started using it when I was at Instructure in 20. 14, we started using React inside of our, our Ember code there. Like a page that was run by Ember, we started to like 
React components started showing up on the page. And it wasn't long before it was like, well, hey, these we'll just start doing new development in just React. And I think that there's really something to that where because this thing worked and it gave you a lot of options, it was highly flexible and it had this viral aspect where it could just get in there and you could use it anywhere. And that really, like, that really set the stage for it. And then you have to, like, you, and if you want to talk about React winning, you can't, you can't not mention that Angular kind of lost their lead when they made Angular 2 a rewrite upgrade. It's like, hey, Angular 1 was great for what it was. When React came on the scene, they completely, they, they changed the world. They changed how JavaScript was done when React came on the screen, on the, uh, when React came into the scene. And everyone had to respond, but the responses are really where you started to see like things change. Angular 2, it's like, well, why would I upgrade to Angular 2 if I have to rewrite everything when I can just rewrite it? If I'm going to rewrite it, why don't I just rewrite it in React? React is more fun. Why not? So, I mean, that, that's exactly the the thing that my team was faced with. It was like, we can either, because there, there is no backwards compatibility that really works from Angular 2 to Angular 1 or vice versa. And that was the biggest stumbling block that we had. Because if, if it had been easier to upgrade, we probably would have done it as the path of least resistance. But since it was going to be at least the same amount of effort to rewrite our application to work with Angular 2 and up, or rewrite it in React. And I was already kind of on the React train as more interested in that than I was in Angular at the time because Angular is so rigid and so inflexible how it wants things done and structured and just how it wants everything to be done. Yeah, I was I was totally in on going for React instead. I Plus, I really like the fact that React has less magic than Angular has ha- has always kind of had under the hood. You know, you use special Angular syntax. It's a little bit like jQuery, but it's still different again. And stuff just happens. But with React, it feels to me a lot closer to native JavaScript. You can loop through something with the map function. You can add event handlers and listeners if you need them. You can do the stuff that you would do if you were writing vanilla JavaScript or even jQuery without having to learn a whole bunch of new syntax. And of course, there are works that React has, but I I just felt like it would, it would make me a better JavaScript developer in general than using something like Angular would because Angular has so many peculiarities that are just just for it and its frameworks. My, my wife is an Angular developer, so I got to get the volume down here before I start a... <laughs> a war. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Tell her we love Angular for, <laughs> you know, back in, back in 2013. Angular was great. Thank you, Angular. I am, uh, and I've, I've done some Angular as well. And I'll say like, I mean, I, I agree with these sentiments. I mean, that's why I'm here on a React podcast, but... I will say one thing that I think Angular does quite well is they are more prescriptive. Like there's less like, um, I mean, the whole conversation we had about state management, right? Those things don't, like a lot of these concepts don't really exist in the Angular world because Angular dictates the way, you can trademark the way and, and documents it fully. Whereas React, it's a little bit more, quite a bit more open. So I, to turn this into a question, Tommy, since you're the sort of person that's like in and out of a lot of React apps, are there any other like just advice you have from things you've seen, whether it's related to, to state management or, or really anything for people listening to this, like tips to maintain like 
some of these bigger React applications to keep them from falling into like a bunch of <laughs> duct tape things pasted together. Yeah, no, I love it when people ask me my advice. So yeah, let's let's do it. <laughs> sure, I'll say uh, uh, like a few things that come straight to mind from like both big and small companies. They've all uh, they've all struggled with these things. All right, so and I don't really like a lot of arguments that are like, well, in a large code base, you have to do this. <sighs> I think there are very few things where that's actually true. All right, static types won't save you. They're useful. You can't say they're not useful. They're not going to save you, though. So, like, be reasonable when it comes to static types. Yeah, they can be useful, and you can get if you have buy-in from the team, go for it. But they're not going to save your life. Okay, they're useful. They're a useful tool. Don't make them more than they are. But I say one of the big ones is that I'm really pushing. One of the big ideas that I'm really pushing right now is React works best when you put as little as possible inside of a React component, and when you know you can. React works really well when you say, React, you're in charge of these UI things, these, these uh, user experience things, uh, you know, these interactions. You're in charge of this. Anything that you, that you can do, you can be as aggressive as possible in removing code out of a React component and putting it somewhere else and start layering your application. That is what is the real, that's what's going to win you maintainability prices right there is being able to is it all good architecture honestly like one of the through lines of every kind of architecture flavor that there is from old school mvc to uh angular uh model view whatever and, and everything in between it all comes down to layering your application where you can say this part of the code only knows about this stuff and it doesn't know about anything anything above that all right being able to segment parts of your application, parts of your code, where this is the mental framework that I need to be in when I'm working on this code. And I don't need to worry about these other concepts when I'm out of there. It's really like React, a React component. And now that we're in Hooks world, uh, to a certain extent, React Hooks, they, there's this gravitational pull in React world to stick everything inside of that component and have everything live there. And... There's, there's a gravitational pull there. I, I'm pretty sure I can measure it if given the right tooling that these that it's really easy for a component to just accrete all this extra stuff. And it's all needed. It's not that it's not needed. It's that the React component is not the thing that should own it. So being able to aggressively, even if that's how you find it really helpful to prototype a React component, I got no problem with that. You do you. But when it comes to like a uh, you know when you're when you're you got something working and you're ready for your refactoring stage or whatever, you need to be as aggressive as humanly possible to remove as much as you can out of a React component and let that live somewhere else. Let that live in pure functions. Let that live and and this doesn't just mean create custom hooks. Custom hooks are good. I like custom hooks, but they can only help you so much. That's more I kind of see custom hooks as like a these are things that kind of belong in React. But lots of things need them, and I want React components to share it. So it's more of like I want to share React bits between components. And I'm talking more about more domain stuff. Like I see all the time data transformations that are, and like not just data transformations, but the kind of code that you sometimes see in like React select or Redux selectors and stuff, where it's like it's a data transformation that is also making like setting a deriving a flag that is very 
important to the domain model of your entire application. And it either lives in your React component, which is a terrible place for it. Okay, that's domain code. That should have a special world all by itself. Or is probably the, I don't, I can't decide if this is worse or not. Who I want to condemn more is putting it in the React component or pulling it out into a module named utils. Oh, I can't stand it. that is when, <laughs> okay. Come but my utils is like the, the junk drawer of, <laughs> yeah. you know, folders. Exactly. Yeah. Utils and Personal helpers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm here to attack you now. Uh, <laughs> all of you utils peoples. Utils is not where you put your domain logic. So utils is where you put date functions. And utils is where you put like a uh, merge merge two objects function. That's what, those are utils, okay? Your functions for this user is allowed to see, this user account and permissions are allowed to see this thing, or this particular manufacturing process is allowed to have these colors associated with it. That's domain logic, friends. Don't you dare stick that in the utility folder. So like, that's the kind of thing like, and I think that a lot of that is just kind of just... Uh, it's this gravitational pull. It probably wasn't a component. And someone had a very good idea to pull it out of a component. That's great. But then we haven't had a lot of conversation about like what that means. Like what this, what is this thing that I just pulled out of here? And that's where I've, you know, I, I talk a lot to people about application architecture because it's all about really all application architectures is about how do you organize bits of code into these layers so that you can like segment what you need to think about about you know with them it's like if i like i will want to have a bit of code where i only have to think about like the problem domain i don't have to worry about the react component render model and like when use effects are going to fire when i'm trying to figure out exactly how like these bits of like model data and stuff like that need to interact and derive data from them like i want to deal with that stuff separately and it just so happens that all of a sudden testing becomes way easier when you can do that. So it's like, and there's so many things down the line that this affects. It's easier to test your React components. It's easier to test your domain, your domain logic. And, and you're just, it's not even just domain logic. Sometimes it's just plumbing stuff. I also really don't like seeing a use effect with a fetch inside of it in a React component. With the idea being that you're now coupling your view library to the network layer. And it's like, those are those are two separate things. That's also why I love React Query is this whole idea like, I can have this whole separate set of networking functions that live somewhere else and I give those to React Query. React Query figures out how to, how to do the synchronization between my network calls and my React components. So you use React Query as a bridge but then all of your actual network code can live somewhere else in their own sets of things. So hopefully you see a pattern with the kinds of things that I do and don't like there. But this whole idea that you can organize code into layers. And some people like to think a lot about like the directory, you know, the directory structure of your application and stuff like that. I don't have strong opinions on that. I think that you should just come up with something that works well for your team. I would love for someone to uh, come up with a good like canonical thing that we could just all accept like you know, the Rails way. That's kind of useful. But I think it's more important that you can have that a developer, when they're faced with a problem, they know this layer of code goes over here. This layer of code goes over here. 
And I don't have to solve that every time. And that's really what I see as valuable. And I don't need to keep the entire application from domain to React render cycle in my head when I'm solving some particular problem. It makes refactoring easier. It makes testing easier. Maintainability and upgrades are easier. When you need to upgrade React to concurrent mode, which kind of terrifies me, like I'm really happy that uh, the applications that I've worked on and designed this way, I don't have to worry about my domain code being involved in that upgrade process. So yeah, does that help a little? Yeah, it does. And it's it's funny, you're, you're here from Test Double, you've got a Test Double shirt on. I, I think an undertone of a lot of your advice is to make testing easier too, like, right, because smaller decouple <laughs> components. I mean, even dependency injection, at least like for me, the biggest benefit I've gotten out of dependency injection is it makes tests easier because you don't have to like mock stuff, you can inject things in. So yeah, I, I feel like you're biased by your testing background in a very good way. <laughs> <laughs> you assume I had a testing background before I came to test double. I, you know, I may have just fooled them into hiring me. <laughs> but no, you make a good point, though. Um, it does just so happen to make testing easier. But test double also, we don't do that much testing. Uh, we do testing, but we're not a testing company. We're writing, we're a problem solving company. It just so happens that well-designed code happens to be really easy to test. Mm -hmm. And that's awesome. So that's why it's like, hey, we can all benefit here from having well-designed code, both on the testing and your users are going to be really happy when it doesn't take you three weeks to introduce a new feature or to fix a bug because you're trying to detangle all of these highly complected Redux selectors that are deriving all this data that are kind of synced to the React render cycle. And you're like, what's going on here? I don't know. Your user is going to be happy too when you can move quickly and change things. So that's kind of the but idea. That's the point. But I don't talk about enough is that not only is it better for the developers because it's easier to understand and get into a code base, but it's also better for our end users because we can ship out features that much quicker because everybody understands what's going on with a lot less com constructing the mental model that we all talk about. Absolutely. I love, I love it when people are working on developer experience. That's a, that's a useful thing to work on and very helpful. And I know it has, it's definitely helped me write a lot more code a lot better when people focus on good developer experience tooling. But the, um, it's always important to remember, this is why I really like talking about applications and application developers more than, more than I do libraries. There are people who do great job talking about libraries and developer experience. I really want to see application developers have good experiences for the goal of they can write good software for users. Good software means that it's going to be more maintainable. It's going to be, it's going to be more secure. Or And really all more secure means is when a security thing comes up and you realize you have a security problem that you can fix it. That's really, that's one of the biggest S, that's one of the biggest pillars of having a secure application is that when you inevitably have a security problem, you have a way to fix it quickly. And I, I do think that from friends that, you know, live in the uh, security world, that a lot of times when you hear about companies that get a security warning, like, oh, and then they just kind of like ignore it for a while. I'm convinced that the, the some developer looks at the code and is like, this is going to be terrible to fix. We can't, I, I don't know how to do it. I'm positive that that's like, that, that, that that is the situation that a bunch of these people are finding themselves in is like an unmaintainable code base for something that's really, and they're asked to fix something that is really difficult. And it's like, 
that's the kind of thing you're up against is sometimes it's just users getting frustrated and not having a great experience. Other times it's users important privacy and data involved. And like, that's what maintainability means is that we can handle issues when they come up, whether they be bugs or whether they be security vulnerabilities. It all comes down to maintainability. So it's important to focus on. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation so far, Tommy. Is there anything that we haven't covered yet that we think that you think we should touch on? I really appreciate you guys having me on. Thanks a lot. And uh, <laughs> now I just really, uh, I really encourage people to give thought to your application design, which really comes down to how can I group things together that are similar in you know the kind of the problem domain that they're working in. That's really what a lot of this stuff boils down to. But yeah, other than that, happy to always chat on on Twitter or on the social medias. If anyone ever has questions, I love fielding questions and that kind of stuff. So yeah, that's pretty much it for me. Well, we will put all the links that you've provided to reach you on Twitter, on your website, on your company's website, all that good stuff in the show notes. Hey folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. And now I think it is time to move on to picks. And this is where we talk about things like cool stuff that we've been using, helpful products that we've bought, shows that we've enjoyed. So I will start us off this week. I've got two things. The first is a television show that I would like to do a plug for. It's Ted Lasso at TV. And if you're not familiar with it, the premise is an American football coach who's coaching at the college level is hired to coach a premier soccer team in England. And the antics and hijinks that ensue from making the transition from American (laughs) football to Premier League soccer is, is pretty good. It's starring Jason Sudeikis, who was one of the SNL cast members for quite a while, and he's really excellent in it. So I would definitely encourage anybody who's looking for something to watch. I think the second season is coming out at the end of July, so this is a timely episode in that regard. And then my other pick is a tool that I was turned on to maybe about a month, month and a half ago called Foambubble. And it's actually a uh, an online tool on GitHub for note-taking, kind of like Obsidian if you've used that in that you own the repo, uh, all your notes are written in markdown files, and you can kind of structure it however you want. Maybe you have like a home notes and work notes and whatever else, but I really enjoy that I I am the owner of that completely and I don't have to rely on something like a cloud-based OneNote or Notion or anything like that. So as long as I can get to GitHub, I can get these notes back and I can kind of build them however they want, however I want. And it's really easy because Markdown is as simple as it is for most developers to write. So that, that also was a Mark Erickson recommendation on Twitter. So Mark is a plethora of good information. If you don't follow him, you probably should. He's And he's a really fun, nice guy to interact with just in general. He was a, a brilliant show guest uh, for our show. So yeah, those are my two things. Uh, Lasso and Phone Bubble, and I'll have links to both of those in our, our show notes. Um, TJ, would you like to go next? Sure. I'm going to pick a podcast series called Land of the Giants. It's, uh, it's done by Vox. 
they essentially profile big tech companies. That's those are the the proverbial giants. So they did a series on Netflix, which was very nostalgic because they went back to early Netflix and Netflix versus Blockbuster and some of the history of how that played out and some things that I was totally unaware of. Uh, and then they did Google Next, and they're currently doing the the delivery apps like Grubhub versus DoorDash versus Uber Eats, and sort of how that's played out and how that market has been shaped. And I've I found it kind of fascinating. So if you're into that sort of thing, it's definitely a series that's worth checking out. And that's my very favorite. cool. I love stuff like that, and it's such a it's so funny to think back to where Netflix's roots were in like the DVD game and and destroying Blockbuster, which they really effectively did. So that sounds like a very cool one. <laughs> Jack, what do you got for us? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm going to go with Deno Deploy. So I've just started getting into uh, cloud functions recently. And you know, we all talk about how fast cloud functions are. It's like, oh, yeah, you can update your app and, you know, your cloud functions in like a couple minutes. And I was playing around with Deno Deploy. I don't know if you played around with Deno at all, but you might want to give it a go because, wow, this thing is crazy fast. Like the, the deploy on Deno Deploy is is just nuts. It's so fast, you won't actually believe it. So definitely something if you're into kind of cutting edge and maybe seeing what the future of JavaScript and TypeScript look like, maybe something to start taking a look at right now. Certainly very interesting. The artwork on their site is amazing. Like their, <laughs> their mascot and what they do with it. It's, if nothing else, just look at the pictures. Yeah, absolutely. Very nice. Yeah, Deno is like, it's on my list of things to do. I just haven't quite gotten to it yet. <laughs> and Tommy. What would you like to give us a pick for this week? Cool. All right. I think I've got. I think I've got two. So one of them is a movie, uh, The Courier. It's uh, we. Uh, my wife and I just recently watched it, and we uh, we really liked it. Uh, my wife is Russian, so she has a lot of uh, connection to uh, some of the story and everything. But uh, not personal connection, but just you know, <laughs> cultural connection to the to the story. But The Courier is about uh, Cold War spies uh, between uh, America, Britain, and. Uh, the Soviet Union. And it, it's uh, during the same time period of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And so it was kind of one of the background things in the Cuban Missile Crisis. It's a really good movie. Benedict Cumberbatch and uh, Rachel Brosnahan, who did uh, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. So if you're a fan of either of them, you will probably like it. It's a good show. Good movie. But then uh, a book that I've been reading lately, I'm a big fan of, really like it. It's called, uh, it's a newer book. It's a collection of writings. Um, it's kind of a compendium, but it's uh, called The Anarchist Handbook. So anarchisthandbook.com, it's a really cool book. It's kind of, like I said, it's a collection of just historical writings from just uh, great thinkers in that space over the years. And it's a really cool book. And that's pretty much it. Awesome. Very cool. Well, thank you. I'm definitely going to put The Courier on the list of things to watch. I'm always looking for new movies to, to check out. <laughs> well, cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Tommy. And we will see everybody on the next episode of React Roundup. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.